listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Stacy Clark and I serve in women's ministry and praise team and in children's ministry and wherever else they want me to do something. <laughs> Today I'll be reading Luke 13, 1 through 17. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look for three years. Now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for eighteen years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, honey. Jesus is, he's training his disciples, again, as I shared the last couple of weeks, the way Luke is packaging his gospel. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they they all tell the same story, right? It's the story of Jesus. But they all, they package the story in different ways. You see a lot of similar uh, stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke because those gospels were shared. I don't have time to talk about which came first, uh, but, but some of those uh, documents were and those stories that were told even through the oral traditions were shared. John was the one kid like Sesame Street doing his own thing, you know, but they packaged these stories in order to paint a particular picture. They had a goal in mind. They, they were wanting to, to introduce their readers to the Jesus that they knew. And, and of course, we know that 
while these guys were thinking about how to put these stories and arrange them in such a way that that just communicated his glory, his majesty, and his purpose for coming in the first place, you've got to understand that in the background... The Holy Spirit is superintending all of this activity. So while the the evangelist writers are thinking about how they're to put these things down, God in his sovereignty is superintending exactly how he wanted his words to come out so that when we read them, we might hear words of his as I think about how Luke is packaging, we see as we've studied that, that he, he basically breaks it apart into three particular categories. He's got the, the Galilean early ministry where he's in the north. He's, he's beginning his public ministry. Of course, we've got the birth narratives that we all so much enjoy in, uh, at Christmas time. But the, but the ministry part is in Galilee. He's beginning his ministry. He's preaching a message of the kingdom of God being at hand, ready to be revealed. And now he's in the section of moving from Galilee in the north toward Jerusalem in the south, where Jesus has already said, when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be rejected, betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be raised again on the third day. And they were bumfuzzled by that. They didn't understand exactly what in the world does that mean. I don't get it. Why would you die? We believe you're Messiah. We've got this section where he's moving from Galilee to Jerusalem in Luke's story, even though we know that as the things unfolded chronologically, Jesus was back and forth between the two. Eh, that's, not a, that's not a bad thing. Luke's not telling us a wrong story. He's just putting them together in a particular way. So where we're at in this section, Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. And then we're going to be in the last part, eventually, where he's ministering in Judea in light of the Passover that is coming where he will ultimately be betrayed. He'll lay down his life as a a sacrifice for uh, the sin of the world. We're in this section right now where he's on his way from Galilee to, to Jerusalem. And what is beginning to happen is the crowds are getting larger and larger. The crowds began to gather in Galilee, but they were localized. And now that he's moving toward Jerusalem, they're coming from every direction. They all want to hear what he has to say. They all want to see the works that he's doing because there's a a nationwide rumble that this rabbi from Nazareth, can you believe there was a rabbi from Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? I know. This rabbi from Nazareth was doing and saying things that made him look exactly like Messiah. But that couldn't be him, could it? The religious leaders of that day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the leaders of the synagogues, though those who knew best the Old Testament were lining up to answer that question with a resounding, absolutely not. This is not Messiah. This guy is a fraud. I don't know what you've heard. I don't know what you've seen. But even if you've seen a miracle, he gets his power from Satan. His words are contrary to the law. His actions are contrary to our traditions. No, no, no. Now, they're leaders who they were to follow because they were all of their lives taught that the, the leaders of, of, the, of the people of Israel were the religious leaders. 
And if they were going to be right with God, they would follow after their teaching and conform their activities after their traditions. And when they did not or failed to accomplish that, they would experience God's judgment and it could be seen in their poverty, their disease, their inability to provide for themselves. So now Jesus is coming on this scene and he's preaching and teaching a completely different message. Not a different scripture. No, no, he's using the same Old Testament scripture that these religious leaders have taught now for years. But Jesus is, he's expounding it truthfully. He's teaching it correctly. And it's going against the traditions, the religious authorities. And so as the crowds are growing, people are in multiple camps There are those that have decided this is the guy. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus, the one I'm listening to, that guy, we've decided he's Messiah. And then you've got others that are thinking, I don't know, maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I think he is, but I need a little bit more information. You have others that are saying, maybe he is, but I think he's probably not because all my teachers are saying he's probably not. And then you have the ones who have dug in their heels and said, no way. So in this section, this larger section of several chapters, Jesus is being uh, presented as moving toward the place of his crucifixion, his ultimate glory and his resurrection. And how he's teaching his disciples in the midst of this growing question and answer of who is Jesus? Is he the one or is he not? Last week, we saw how that Jesus said that he didn't come to bring peace. In fact, he came to bring division within even the family units because there would be those that would follow him and those who would not and you would find divided communities, divided families even, maybe even divided marriages over the question and answer, who is this Jesus? And as he ended his teaching there, he, he warned them that were leaning toward rejection to consider settling their accounts with the one they were guilty before, before facing the judge, encouraging them to embrace him, encouraging them to follow him, encouraging them to set aside what they've been taught in order to hear clearly the truth that was being communicated and demonstrated. And then Luke picks up in chapter number 13 as he's painting his picture, as he's putting these stories together. And he says there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. It seems like what we have is a group of of opposers, opposition, coming to Jesus with a, a story that they all know about. Apparently, there were some Galileans in the region, in the area, that were executed by Pilate. I don't know if they were arrested and executed or if they were executed on the spot, but it seems as though this activity took place in and around the time that these Galileans were offering sacrifices in the temple. Well, we don't know what this scene was. There's no historical record of it. But obviously, these people knew about it, and they knew Jesus knew about it. And it seems as though they're bringing this story to him to try to catch him in some sort of trap. One writer has said that these opponents were likely trying to 
leverage Jesus' sympathies. Because where was Jesus from? In, in the area of Nazareth, that would have been the, considered the region of Galilee. So it would have been one of Jesus' own fellow regional countrymen. And he was talking about the execution of worshipers of Yahweh by the oppressing and dictating nation of Rome that was hovering over Israel at that time. And they said, Jesus, what, what about these guys? What about that thing that was done to these seemingly innocent individuals offering sacrifices by this wicked governor, Pilate? Seems like they were trying to get him to sympathize with the victims. That if he said, yeah, that's a travesty. I can't believe that happened. Then they could go and accuse him before Pilate as a seditionist. They could go say, yeah, see this Jesus? He was just trying to stir up the crowds over what you did over those Galileans. And he's trying to gather up an army. Or they were thinking if they could get Jesus to sympathize with these Galileans that Jesus would be taking a position against God himself. You say, how in the world would that be? Look what Jesus says in verse number two. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? The, the answer is yes. It was a very common traditional folklore type theology that was held by the Jews at that time, time prior, and even into time future. And it's this, if you are experiencing personal calamity and that calamity elevates in its severity, then all that does is demonstrate just how worse of a sinner you are than the rest of us. If your sins cause God's judgment balance to tip over, he'll bring personal calamity into your life. So the answer that Jesus, to the question Jesus is answering, are you guys thinking that these Galileans were worse sinners as evidenced by the fact that God used this wicked governor to kill them? Is that what you think? The answer in their hearts, maybe even the nods of their heads were, well, well, yeah. So hopefully Jesus is either going to sympathize with them and say that this was a bad thing and they're going to be able to accuse him to Pilate or Jesus is going to sympathize with these Galileans. You're a Galilean, aren't you? And if he sympathizes with them, even if we don't go to Pilate, we can hold him in, in, uh, in, in opposition to God because God brought judgment on them. That's the truth. How do you know that's the truth? Because it's what we've been taught. Or if Jesus didn't sympathize with them at all, they could accuse him of just being a hardened individual who doesn't care about anybody. So it seems as though this thing was brought to him in order to trap him. So he replies, not with sympathy and not with, you know, hardened hearted either. He replied, so you're thinking these Galileans were worse sinners because of what happened to them. Verse number three, he says, no. No, that's not it. It's not it at all. It's not how God works. No, they're not worse sinners, I tell you. But unless you repent, who? You in the crowd. Who, who, who'd he leave out in the crowd? Nobody. Even those 
who thought themselves spiritually superior because they had not experienced that kind of calamity. Jesus said, no, no, that's, that's not how it works. Y- y'all, don't, y'all don't get it. But if you don't repent, you all will likewise perish. Hmm. So what are you saying, Jesus, that Pilate's going to kill me? What are you saying, that I'm going to die? Everybody dies. So what are you saying? Jesus brings up another incident. Verse number four. He, he kind of volleys there. They're, they're bringing him what I think is an opportunity to accuse him. Now Jesus brings up another calamity that won't have the ability to accuse him against anybody. He says in verse 4, what about those 18 on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Okay, Jesus, what are you talking about? Again, another event they knew about, but historically we don't know. Probably what was happening here is in the construction uh, uh, desires of King Herod at that time. If you continue to read here and in the other Gospels, you'll discover that the Herod that was in power at that time was one of, of great building projects. He was building, rebuilding the temple. He was doing all kinds of, of uh, restoring those old, kind of like what 610 doing downtown. You know, it looks beautiful down there. They're restoring the old buildings in Winter Haven. Looks great. Well, that's what Herod was doing. So probably what Jesus is referring to is a building project on the southeastern wall of Jerusalem where a tower was being built and fell because maybe of of lack of, of, uh, of, of scaffolding or whatever was needed. Probably it was a construction accident where 18 individuals were killed when the tower came falling down on them. He says, do you suppose they were? worse offenders because that happened to them was that God judging them because they were worse sinners than everyone else he says in verse 5 no I tell you but unless you repent here he says it again you will all likewise perish It seems as though his opponents are bringing a situation to Jesus to trap him. And then he takes their attempt in order to leverage the word that he used twice in his response. That is repentance. What is Jesus talking about? Repenting. Well, if you read in specifically in John's gospel, you'll hear about a man named John the Baptist who began his ministry oh, just about six months prior to Jesus' ministry being begun. And John's message was this. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. The people in Israel knew what that word meant. It had a context that they understood in their national history. Because in the Old Testament, repentance was not an uncommon uh, uh, theme or thread by which God spoke to his people. And for the majority of the Old Testament, everywhere you see repentance being identified, God is speaking to the people of Israel. 
Now, there's one other big time that's used uh, where repentance is, is identified, and it's when Jonah, the reluctant prophet, goes to Nineveh to a, to a, a, a horrible nation of, of uh, pagans in order to tell them, if you don't repent, then God's going to destroy you. And much to Jonah's chagrin, they repented, and God didn't destroy them because of their repentance. The people of Israel... When they hear the word repent as either a noun or a verb, they knew what it meant. In the Old Testament, it had the idea of a wholehearted turning to God. See, when God set apart Abraham and began to build the people that he would use to communicate to the world his love and desire to restore what was broken in their relationship by sin then God was constantly having to remind his people, hey y'all, uh, I'm the one you're supposed to be following because it seemed like at every turn they were jumping off trail to worship some pagan deity of some neighboring nation because it just looked cool and they wanted to be with those folks and be like them. That doesn't sound anything like us now, does it? God was constantly having to tell his people, hey, You need to turn around. You need to reverse your travel and get your focus over here on me. And there were times that they did. But more often than not, the people of Israel, when God called them to repentance, basically in a national way, did this. La, 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 I can't hear you. And what would God do? He would bring about judgment to turn them back to him he wasn't looking for them to just say oh my bad God uh we'll get with you don't we ain't forgot you don't worry we're still with no he was looking for a wholehearted letting go of what has distracted you and turning back to him from the heart so they understood when Jesus said but unless you repent you all will likewise perish. And I know that in the minds of those who were wondering who Jesus was and in the minds of those who had already rejected who Jesus was claiming to be, in their minds they're thinking, turn to God how? We're turned to God. You're the one who's turned against him. And Jesus' consistent identification by his words and deeds was no. Repenting means that you turn to God through me. You say, well, that that seems awful, awful arrogant. Not for Messiah. Because all throughout their Old Testament, they knew full well that following God would ultimately look like following his chosen one. So it wasn't strange at all for Jesus to be saying, you better repent because right now you're following everybody but the one who's been designated to be followed. That would have been very normal to everyone who identified him as Messiah. But to those who rejected, you know what it demonstrated? It demonstrated a hardness of heart. Not only against Jesus, but against the God they said they worshipped. 
And I think the, the, the perishing that he's talking about is not physical perishing. We all going to die. But when he talks about perishing, he's talking about existence apart from connection with God. Something worse than being killed at the sacrifice. Something worse than having a tower fall on your head. All of those are just circumstances in a sinful world, not because they're worse sinners, but because we live in a broken universe because of sin. But if you don't repent, your fate is far worse. I think Jesus was demonstrating the truth about sin, judgment, and repentance. But then he goes on to tell a parable. This parable is very unique. It's about a, about a vine, uh, a vineyard owner who plants a fig tree in his vineyard. And I think Jesus is being very specific here as he's speaking to this audience with opposition present. You got to think, Jesus is communicating truth. There are those that are following him, and their following him is contrary to the authorities in their own nation. And these authorities are present in this audience. And so I think Jesus does right here is turn from the individual unless you repent and you repent and you repent. I think now he goes to a more national illustration. And I think this national illustration is for his most strident opposition. I think he's speaking directly to those in authority who are against him. And he says this. Let me tell you a story. Man had a fig tree, verse 6, planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Uh, anybody ever planted something in your, in your backyard and you found yourself going to look for fruit way before fruit should be there? Like you put the tomato plant in the ground, you water it, and like three days later, you're out there looking for a tomato. And you're like, no, it don't work like that. Okay, it's got to grow. It's got to, you know, do its thing. And then it'll, you'll see them when they come, and then you got to wait on them because you don't want to eat them when they're green unless you're weird and you like those things, okay? And so it wasn't that the, that the owner of the vineyard was prematurely seeking fruit where it shouldn't have been found. It's not like he was expecting something that couldn't be there. The notion is this guy knows plants he knows fruit-bearing plants, and so therefore he knew that it would be time for fruit to be visible. And he said to the vine dresser, look, you got the owner, owns the place, had the tree planted, and then you've got a vine dresser who works at the, at the, uh, 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 the authority of the owner. He cares for the vineyard. All right, he cooks to the vine dresser, and he says, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this tree, and I find none. Three years is plenty of time for a healthy tree to have produced something. As a, as a tree, it wouldn't have been out of the ordinary to expect some fruit. And I've been doing this for three years, and I ain't found a thing. So what does that say? Let's say this tree is diseased this tree is a waste this tree is taking up space and it's not helping anybody he looks at the vine dresser and he says cut it down 
well, that's harsh. No, it's not. I mean, we'll let, you know, we'll, we'll have a little chirp in a, in, a, in a belt on our car. We're looking to trade. You know, I don't know what's up. You know, maybe it just needs a belt. But look, we're looking to get out, you know? I mean, that he says, cut this thing down. No, that, this tree is not doing what I put it there for. It's a waste of space, and it's a frustration. So I just want you to cut it down. Why should I use up, why should it use up the ground? I'm going to put something else there. If this ain't going to produce, I'm going to put something else there. <laughs> Keep that in mind. And he answered him. That's vine dresser, verse 8. Answer, vine dresser answered. Sir, let it alone this year also. Uh, sir, could we give it one more year? What do you think? Would you be willing to give it one more year until I dig around it and put on manure? <laughs> Stacy said just before we got up here, she said, you would pick me to read the week. I got to say manure. <laughs> well, you know what? I didn't even think about that. But okay, I guess that's just uh, some sort of weird karma. Anyway, let me dig around it. Let me put some fertilizer on it. You know, let me, let me, let me see if I can just one last ditch effort. Let me, just, let me just work with it for one more year. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it now. I think what Jesus is demonstrating to those in the audience, specifically those in authority, specifically those in authority who had rejected him as Messiah, I think he's showing them the facts of Israel's danger. I believe that Israel was created by God as a nation in order to demonstrate to the larger world the goodness of God, the provision of God. What does it look like when a people will turn their hearts to their creator? And they'll repent and they'll be sorry for who and what they are as they're taught who and what they are and so that they might receive the restoration and the blessing that comes by being a people of God. But that's not what Israel had been for many, many, many years. Oh, they've had some great folks. They've had some phenomenal prophets some tremendous heroes that have done some really awesome things. In fact, there's some of those heroes that aren't in the biblical record that we hold. You know, there's some books that we don't have that the Catholic Church has because they're, we're not considered, we don't consider those scripture, but they do have some pretty historical stories about some pretty cool guys that were guerrilla warfare type people that did some pretty neat stuff in between the Testaments. And so it's not that there weren't individuals in Israel that were fruit bearers, but the nation as a whole, as led by their leaders, had been consistently fruitless. I think what Jesus is doing is giving them the facts that the owner is prepared to cut this tree down. The owner is prepared to judge this nation. And you guys are the ones leading the nation. Think about it. When Israel's kings had a heart after God, so did the people. 
When Israel's leaders at the top had a broken heart toward the things of God, so did the people. But when Israel's kings turned from God in order to follow any form of paganism, what did the people do? Followed right in suit. Let the party begin. These authorities weren't leading them to the party, but these authorities were leading them to destruction because they were rejecting the revelation of Yahweh himself. In the form of Jesus, the Messiah, who we know to be God himself. And I think Jesus is looking pointedly at those individuals. And he's saying, the owner is prepared to cut you down. But I'm trying to offer you. One more chance. Come on. You, you know your Old Testament. Just, just set your pride down. Just, just set this thing up that you have in your mind. Just set it aside. Just weigh the evidence. Look and listen and you'll see it. You'll know it. But if you continue to reject... And when this period of extended time is over, God's ready to cut you down. Now, does that mean that God doesn't love Israel? Does that mean God did not love people in Israel? Does that mean that God does not love these authorities who are rejecting him? Of course not. He loves them completely. He, he loves them unconditionally. But as a nation... God was about done with them. And I'll cut you down and I'll put something else there that will bear fruit in keeping with my desire. I think ultimately the tree of Israel will be cut down. Though temporarily and replaced with another thing. Y'all probably know what it's called. It's picked up in the New Testament. It's called the church. I think that's the thing he puts in place of Israel because they're ultimately going to reject him. They're going to put their Messiah to death as a nation. In A.D. 70, we see, I think, God's visible judgment on that nation. Jerusalem's destroyed. But what burns brightly with the truth of the gospel headed in every corner of the globe is the church. And I believe that's, the, that's the, the tree that is to be bearing fruit right now. But let's move on. We've seen the truth about sin, judgment, and repentance. I think we've seen the facts about Israel's danger. But then let's look at the reality of Jesus' pursuit of the broken. As he lets that, as Luke just lets that word hang there. The owner's ready to cut it down. But I'm given more time. He's agreed to let me give more time to focus and continue to invite and to cultivate. And I think what Luke does is he takes a story that didn't happen right here. I think he takes it and he plugs it in right here. Because it says, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues. So we have, an, you know, have a hard right hand turn right here. I think Luke's going, okay, I'm going to take this. 
And I'm going to plug it right here because this is going to fit real well with what Jesus said. He's warned the nation. He's warned the unrepentant. But now watch this. He's teaching one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman. Ladies, just get this. Hey, guys, too. That these writers are identifying women is a cultural departure. Because women weren't, they, they weren't identified. They, 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 they weren't seen as important as the men were. But what's even bigger than that, that Jesus was consistently moving toward the secondary class of society in the diseased children, outcast, and women is just a constant reminder of his great love and his great value. I think you ought to see that, and I think you ought to know that, and I think you ought to feel that in your heart. Jesus loves you just like the rotten fellas that he also loves as well. Behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. It means that she was being oppressed. You might even could say possessed by an evil spirit, a demon. And she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. She was unable to stand up straight. She was crooked. She was broken. She was a shell of what she was made to be. I think what Luke did is, I think he brought for us a picture of broken Israel. I think he picked for us a picture of broken individuals, depending on who's reading this. And I think he plugs it in here so that we'll cons- we can see that even though Jesus has given a stark warning about the results of unrepentance, I want you to see where Jesus' heart and desire and pursuit is. He found this woman while he was teaching. Maybe she came in late because it took her longer to get there than everybody else. Maybe she even disrupted the meeting, causing Jesus to look up. But when he looked up, he didn't see somebody that he disdained because they interrupted his flow. He looked up and he saw a daughter of Abraham who was in dire need of release. When Jesus saw her, verse 12, he called her over. Jesus moved toward her. Now, there's a few miracles in the Scripture where Jesus goes to the individual. Most of the time, they come to him. A lot of the time, they line up out the road, and he'll heal them for hours at a time. But a few times in the Gospels, we see Jesus going to someone who probably wasn't expecting anything at all. We, we think about that guy who was waiting by the pool of, of uh, Salome. He's waiting to, to jump over into water because when the angel stirs up the water traditionally, if you're the first one in, so he's focused on that. And Jesus comes over and addresses him. In the same way, woman comes in, Jesus sees her in her broken state, And he calls her over. 
What does that show us? Jesus offered an invitation, and she had a choice. Jesus calls her over. She could have very easily went, walked out. Jesus offered her an audience with himself, which I think has with it the notion that she responded to his invitation and hobbles over to him and he said to her, woman, you are free from your disability. Okay, thanks. Verse 13, and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. Now, think about it, guys. How many days, weeks, months do we sometimes have aches and pains that have solutions? But it requires that we pick up the phone and make an appointment with the doctor. We don't like going to the doctor. We don't like taking time to go to the doctor. I'd rather just be unable to move. Completely miserable in life. Grumpy with everyone and no use to anything. I'd rather do that. I don't like doctors. They just have the ability to prescribe things that I probably need. Make me feel a lot better. Make my family a lot happier. We got this same kind of choice too. Just, you know, no, I'm good. I think what Luke is saying is, look, Jesus went to one who was broken and said, come here. And when she responded, when she turned toward him, I think Luke's going, that's what repentance looks like. Look, look, look. You're broke. Everybody knows it. Everybody can see it. And now Messiah is saying, Come here. You come here. I I see what's going on. Come here. When you turn to him, the scriptures begin to teach about coming to him, not by works, but by faith. When we turn to him, believing, and we allow him access in our life, then he will reach and touch us and transform what is broken. You say, Pastor Kevin, I, I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus, and, but I still have the pain. I've been praying, asking Jesus to take the pain away. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see how that works out. Because the bigger teaching is not in Jesus' ability to heal the woman physically. That's not the bigger picture. That woman could go out the next day, fall off her back porch, and break her leg. That that woman could be hit by a chariot the next day and be dead. The picture is not about the physical as much as it is about the transformational thing. That was an example of what Jesus can do in a larger way. And that has to do with sin. What is the biggest broken in us? And he touched her, and for 18 years she was slumped over. And he touched her, and immediately 
she stood up straight. And what did she begin to do? She began to glorify God. She began to glorify God. Yahweh, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the rulers of this synagogue. It's your God. I'm glorifying our God because of what He has done for me. And who is He? He's none other than Jesus, Messiah, God the Son. She began to glorify Him. And I think Luke goes, y'all watch this. Watch what's about to happen. But, verse 14, the ruler of the synagogue indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, he quotes scripture here. I bet he's a lovely individual to be around. You know, a real, a real buzzkill, a real party pooper here going on. We're celebrating. This woman is, she's released. She's freed. She's healed. Uh, point of order, you know, real, real great guy here. Uh, The Old Testament says there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be healed and not on the Sabbath. Well, you shouldn't have done that today. Why? Because it's the Sabbath day. We're not supposed to work. We're supposed to worship God. What is happening in that synagogue? I mean, they're experiencing worship like they had never experienced before because God had done something amazing. He's worried about whether or not Jesus' ability to heal is work that violates the Sabbath. What did Jesus already told them uh, in, in chapters early? I think it's chapter 6 of this book. What did he tell them about the Sabbath? He says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I know what should and shouldn't be done on the Sabbath. I know what is and isn't work. I know what I'm doing. I wrote that. I know how to fulfill that. And then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! This is the rulers of the synagogue who think what Jesus has just done on the basis of her faith and his power, they think it ought not be to you, you bunch of hypocrites. Talking about work. Don't each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water it? Aren't you going out and gathering your agricultural tools and walking them down to the water so that they can, you know, not perish and cause you financial loss? Don't you do that with your animals? The answer, crowd looking around, they're going, yeah, I see them down there all the time. They do it all the time. I'm with them. Yeah, we do it all the time. Verse 16, and ought not this woman... A daughter of Abraham, by the way, whom Satan bound for 18 years. How do you know that? Be loosed from, his, uh, from this bond on the Sabbath day. You'll water your animals. Shouldn't this woman be freed on the Sabbath? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame. And all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. I watch too much TV. I watch too many movies. Because in my mind as I'm reading that out and as Jesus is, he's, he's coming back to the people. Wait a minute. Hold, hold on, hold on. Settle down. And everybody gets quiet. And they're listening to Jesus say, don't you water your animals on the Sabbath? Of course you do. 
Wouldn't it be better for her to be released as one of our sisters and God to do something great on the Sabbath? Wouldn't that be okay? And I just imagine the one redneck in the crowd going, yeah, and then everybody cheers because I watch too many movies, right? I think that's what happened. I think that's how they responded. They looked around and went, of course it is, and they erupt in joyful praise as the Jerks have to go home knowing that everybody now thinks they're a bunch of jerks. But I sure want to hear more about what this Jesus has to say as the vine dresser continues to cultivate, as he continues to invite. See, I think Israel as a nation got put on pause. And now their responsibility has in similar fashion been handed over to us. We're not Israel, we're the church. But we're made up of all those who have by faith wholeheartedly turned. A complete turn from self. A complete turn from any other religion or savior. A complete turn to Jesus in full surrender. Not saying, Jesus, I'd love for you to walk with me, or I'd love for you to be my co-pilot, or Jesus, good thing, I like hanging out with your people. No, in full surrender, saying, Jesus is Lord, crucified in my place for my sin, raised from the dead, victorious over sin, death, hell, the grave, and demonstration of new life that is mine today and that will extend eternally and even better when he returns. And until then, what are we to do? We're to continue to communicate the message. The kingdom of God is ready to be revealed. And it's revealed in God the Son, whose name is Jesus. You can experience that today as we look for the big party that is to come. It's going to mean difficulty in this life to follow Jesus. It's not going to be pie in the sky. You won't have your cake and you won't eat it. You'll suffer and it'll be difficult and you'll have to go against the stream and everyone will be against you. But that's okay because he's for you. And if he's for you, then it doesn't matter who's against you. As we wait on his return, as we wait on the completion, as we make disciples and see others come to faith in him. That's our call. That's our responsibility. That's our opportunity. But it begins with repentance. Some application. Number one, believing, saving faith involves repentance, a change of mind from all other saviors to Jesus alone. If you've never trusted Jesus It's not about adding him to your life. It's about turning to him wholly and completely. But if that's your decision, then he will restore your heart. He will give you new life. A new place in his family. A new hope for the future. But a brand new purpose for today. Number two, refusal to repent and embrace Jesus will result in in eternal death and judgment. You say, how does that work? I don't know how it works. I just know they say it over and over and over again. You turn to me in faith. 
There is no other way. There is no other hope. All other roads lead to destruction. But my way, the narrow way, the difficult way, but the way that is by faith. Well, it leads to me. That where I am, there you'll be also. So follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. Number three, repentance. Turning to Jesus by faith results in restoration and eternal blessing with a pretty good little measure of earthly suffering. But that's okay. Because this is temporary. And that is eternal. And he'll even use what is temporary and painful in this life to bring himself more glory, which he'll turn around and reward you for. And that doesn't make any accounting sense whatsoever. But what a blessing to know. Number four, God's judgment is sure. God's judgment on sin is sure. He's already judged it on Jesus. You, you can go with him and have yourself reconciled to him. Or you can stand before him on behalf of your own sin. That's not what God wants. But that's certainly something he will allow you to choose. But know this. God's love, mercy, grace, and long-suffering are what's currently going on. And it's available for all who receive. And then lastly, every believer should have a heart of perpetual rejoicing, not because God's fixed your back, but because God has changed your life, given you the opportunity to be numbered with Him, and given a hope for every day and all of eternity. If you know Jesus is Savior, then we really can say every time somebody asks, how you doing today? We really can say honestly, I'm blessed and highly favored. It might not be going okay in your life, and maybe you should share that too. But at the end of the day, if you know Christ, we've got reason to glory in him. Amen? So, there's a lot of folks out there who don't know him. And we've been given the opportunity to bear fruit of letting them know. And pointing them to Jesus. So let's be busy this week. Let's go out there and show some folks the true message of the gospel. His name is Jesus. That's right. Let's stand together. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. God, we don't understand how you think and operate. But we sure do love what you've shared with us. And that is that you've gone and, and spared no expense to provide for our redemption, our forgiveness. God, to restore us to what you've intended with creation. We have nothing to offer except our brokenness. And in your grace, your mercy, your love, you choose to take it. Apply it to your son. And give us freedom. A new name a hope, and a job. Help us to do that job faithfully this week. Give us opportunities. Help us to see them. Help us take advantage of them. We love you. We trust you. First in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said. it.